Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And uh, inadvertently, last time, I left off the last paragraph of the previous step. And so we are beginning this evening at the top of page 131 of the text with paragraph 12. So it's the very last sentence of, the, of step 11. And so we'll begin there and then move into step 12 online. Few can restrain water without a dike. Still fewer can tame an intemperate mouth. The 11th step, he who has mastered it has cut off a multitude of evils at one blow. So it's near impossible to restrain an intemperate mouth. Uh, it, and it is no easy thing to uh, restrain our speech. So often it is tied not only to our thoughts, but to our emotions. And uh, before you know it, we can let something slip. And especially with anger, we seem to uh, uh, speak out of anger and frustration. Sarcasm often comes very quickly. And, uh, and, and so there is a, a kind of radical vigilance, I think, that is involved with watching over one's speech. And, and this is why the, the fathers, again, emphasize fostering silence and stillness, that we make that a habit for ourselves so that we slow things down and are able to discern whether or not something is worth saying. It's not more beautiful in si than silence, so the saying goes, it's better not to be said. Step number 12, online. The offspring of flint and steel is fire, and the offspring of chatter and joking is lying. So the talkativeness and the joking and the chattering that we've just talked about in the previous step, gives rise to something more abhorrent, that our unrestrained speech, our thoughtlessness, uh, can lead us then to misuse speech in a very uh, profound way. And we'll see just how serious it is in the, the rest of John's writing in this step. Uh, but it is, is something that is seen to be destructive in great measure. He goes on to say, number two, a lie, is the destruction of love, and a false oath is a denial of God. Uh, it's incredible definition uh, of lying, and I think so often we uh, will make excuses, I think, for the use of our speech, and we often will see that movement develop within us, you know, from jesting to these jesting stories that involve a kind of lie, and this can foster within our hearts then a greater freedom that we give ourselves in stretching the truth or, or denying the truth altogether. But the position that John is coming from is that for us, truth is a person. It's Christ himself. And so uh, lying is a destruction of love. Uh, it's to act against Christ himself in a very personal way and a false oath. And so to make an oath that we lie uh, about is a denial of God itself. And so th there's something that is, uh, is there's a kind of, uh, one becomes an apostate almost, or, a, or an atheist by lying. So you not only break down charity, it's not only a sin against charity, uh, but it's a sin against faith itself. It's a denial of God. Uh, if we uh, believe in God, then we are going to treasure and hold precious the truth and find it something that is nauseous to us uh, to break it. And uh, this is uh, a habit of mind and heart that I think we really have to work on in our day. At least I know it's true for me uh, in the spiritual life. Anthony writes, I've also been thinking that our bodies and societies are parables of truth, and we can be lying by engaging in bad lifestyles, right? That we deny our dignity and our identity uh, by not living in accord with it. 
Uh, we fail to bear witness to the truth that we've been made in the image and likeness of God, and that we have been created to share in the fullness of that, that life, and that we would live as those who have been redeemed by his blood. And insofar as we turn away uh, from that reality, we are also turning away from God and from the truth. Let no one who thinks rightly suppose that the sin of lying is a small matter, for the all-Holy Spirit pronounced the most awful sentence of all against it, above all sins. If thou wilt destroy all that speak a lie, as David says to God, what will they suffer who stitch an oath onto a lie? So uh, in one of the Psalms, David is not only wondering to himself, you know, what will happen to one who experiences the wrath of God for the denial of the truth, but then binds himself to the lie, takes an oath based upon it. What, what, is, it, what is the impact upon that individual's soul? And so swearing or taking oaths uh, are no light matter. And uh, I think, in, again, in our day and age, we see how easily uh, that is done. And uh, we should be very, very cautious, you know, especially avoiding, you know, phrases like, you know, honest to God, or I swear, swear to God. Um, you know, there's something about those phrases that I think make light or can make light uh, of the truth. I have seen some who priding themselves on their skill in lying and exciting laughter by their jest and twaddle have pitiably destroyed in their hearers the habit of mourning. And so interesting, you know, if, if for the monk, there is a desire to sharpen one's sensibilities in regards to their own sin and to mourn that sin, to foster compunction and true contrition in the heart that leads a person to repentance and to turn back to God. A kind of jesting that he's uh, describing here, a twisting of the truth uh, for amusing reasons uh, can be used not simply to lighten the mood, uh, but can undermine this far greater and far more important habit that John speaks of, which is, is mourning for one's sin. Blessed are those who mourn. And uh, for this is the one thing that, that draws us back to God, this acknowledgement of the poverty of our sin, but also keeps us from falling back into it again. And so not to, to diminish the, the value of humor or of laughter. There's something that we know that is healing and wonderful about it. But very often our, our humor does involve uh, a kind of lying in it that we uh, will twist the truth for the sake of uh, getting others to laugh at something. And again, John says, we can't take this lightly because it not only, I think, weakens our sensibilities in that regard in terms of our valuing of the truth, but it has an impact, a real impact upon those who listen to us, that we can become a distraction uh, for them in the spiritual life, to pull the mind and the heart away from God, but from also what is going on in their hearts. And I think we've all had that experience where, uh, you know, uh, something from like a sitcom or a movie will come to mind through the day and one can be, you know, have this memory of it and be chuckling even to oneself about it. And sometimes it can be off color and yet the idea of the remembrance of God that we hear spoken of so, so frequently amongst the fathers uh, is set aside so easily that we will be captivated by such memories, thoughts of things that we've seen and heard that, again, as John says, it can draw us and, and he says even pitiably destroy in their hearers the habit of mourning. And so... It's, it's not only our listening to others, uh, but also the things that we expose ourselves to on, on a daily basis. How does this affect 
our minds and our hearts. We know again that the power of imagination of memory and how hard it is to purify imagination and memory. Once we, we have something within it that, uh, especially something that is rooted in falsehood or rooted in this kind uh, of humor then that undermines our focus upon God. And so even something like humor has to be touched by the grace of God and perfected or can be used against us uh, by the evil one or become something that's destructive. Any thoughts so far on John's definitions or what he said? Any concerns? Okay. Father David, sorry, yeah. real quick. I guess I'm still just under, like, I guess it's hard to understand. It's just hard to understand, like, the nuance, I think, of what he's saying. Like, I'm not getting it, right? Like, are you supposed to just, like, I, I guess it makes sense to me in the setting, maybe, of he's in the monastery, the desert. And I don't mean that, like, so it's okay for him and it's not for me. I just mean, though, that, because, so I don't mean it that way. I mean it more in the sense, though, that, like, the things that he encounters throughout the day, mm -hmm. it would seem like a bigger he and everyone who's at that monastery have purposely fled the rest of the things in the world to have the ability to do this. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it would seem like a bigger misstep to be doing this then in that setting, just like yelling fire in a movie theater is worse than yelling fire just in your front yard when you're playing a game with your kids type of deal. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I, I guess I can see how it would still be um, how it can still distract one away, um, even if you're not in the monastery and it's just, you know, everyday life. And I can see that. I don't know. It just doesn't seem quite as great as he's making it sound like for the majority of people, if that makes sense. Right. Like, because I don't know. I don't know if I'm describing it well. I don't, I, I can't, I guess. Well, no, I understand. I'm following you. And, you know, there are, if we see things on a spectrum, we can, you know, acknowledge that there are forms of it that are more serious than others. But I think what John is trying to describe here is a kind of habit of mind that can really take root and lead us into a denial, a greater denial of the truth uh, by the things that we say and how we engage each other in our conversation. We even hear Christ say, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. And, uh, you know, our jest, and I've used it myself, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll say a falsehood uh, just to see the reaction of another, uh, to get a rise out of them. And we can make light of that. You know, it, okay, it's a joke. And we use it to startle a person for a moment, and we might laugh about it. And especially if a person, you know, is able to be, remain straight-faced, uh, you know, during it all, you know, person you can get a person riled up, uh, but it's still rooted in this lie. And I think for John, that our understanding of lying, of falsehood as a sin against the truth is magnified now in light of, of Christ himself. That again, you know, truth is not an abstraction. Truth is a person, it's Christ. And so to twist it, to use it in even a humorous fashion, uh, to entertain ourselves or to enter, or entertain others is uh, to, to use it, to misuse it in a way. And so it's a sin uh, against, against Christ himself, a sin against God himself. And uh, it's this kind of habit that John, I think, worries about, that as with the other sins in our life, they often will begin very small. And uh, where we, gives our, we give ourselves latitude in making use of it and minimize the weight and the significance of it. And John is saying, we, we dare not do that in our minds, because if we give ourselves over to it and minimize it, especially for the use of something like humor, uh, 
uh, which can be good uh, and can be a good in our life, that it can take hold and take root that we find we'll find ourselves eventually being willing to lie about things of, of greater importance. And so in the minds of the fathers, there are no small sins. I think we have this idea in our mind, you know, especially with that, the distinction that we've often talked about between immortal and venial. But I, I think in the way that they approach uh, the struggle with sin is that one can never ignore it at all in regards to its, its weight, that a small sin always has this capacity, if unattended to, if we do not uproot it, to become deeply rooted and then take hold of our life. And I think that's why he warns so clearly here in these first sentences that there can be something like you describe, yelling fire out in the yard to your kids. And you could say, well, okay, that's, that's not being destructive. That's not doing any harm. But I think John would say that we are inherently doing harm to ourselves. We're wounding ourselves as well by that, that falsehood, by, by turning away from that truth, because we're not turning away from, again, something that's abstract, or just saying, uh, you know, this falsehood about there being a fire, but we're, in doing that, we're turning away from Christ, something far more personal. And so, you know, every aspect of who we are as human beings is to be touched by the grace of God. And even our virtues, as we so often talked about, that our love of the truth has to be perfected by God's grace and by this understanding of who and what truth is, that we come to hold it precious and to be the most precious thing of all, that we are willing to sacrifice perhaps, you know, certain forms of humor, participation in forms of certain kinds of joking, jesting, uh, in order to keep ourselves from uh, exposing ourselves to further temptation from the evil one. I'll just add Anthony's comment here. I can imagine a confessor becoming very exasperated if we treat all this as confessible sins, and it would be very wearing on us all. Yeah, I think on some level, perhaps, uh, I, I think there's room for a confessor to say, okay, this is not a serious thing, uh, a, a weighty matter, as we would with other uh, of the capital sins. They might not reach the level of having, you know, this uh, great severity about them, but a priest would have the responsibility of articulating what John does here, that if a person's conscience tells them, okay, I'm in this practice of lying or telling white lies, you know, the, uh, I don't think a priest would say that that's inappropriate to bring to confession because it's a healing sacrament. And so if a person finds themselves struggling with it with a kind of regularity that it's become habitual, then bringing it to confession, I think, is a good thing because one articulates it in a concrete way to confess her, but also can receive counsel uh, as how, how to deal with it. And that which is unacknowledged and not dealt with eventually can take root. And so something as simple as telling white lies, but telling them regu regularly, if not dealt with, can become a, a great problem for a person, especially if they're faced with something in their life that where truth is costly. And whereas they're going to have to make some sacrifice or there can be some repercussion for it. Uh, David Swiderski writes, like many other things, isn't discernment, isn't discernment take place here? Is this so people will think I am funny, pride? Will this hurt someone? Will it erode trust, the cost of lies, or lead to a habit? Right, that a discerning mind, I think is what John is telling us as well, would be able to acknowledge that there are consequences to all of these, and some of them might not be as grave as others on the surface, but again, unattended to or made light of can be some, become something greater. Sue and Mark.
Yeah, my question, I, I had a couple of things. First of all, I was really interested in the idea of, you know, the white lies and um, mental reservation when you have, when you're with people and you have them, maybe in conversations, women especially, um, tend to ask questions really that are none of their business. And so, I mean, we just do, that's who we are. And um, how do you I'm not going that? near that one. Yeah, I'll come <laughs> you can handle it. And so the, the real question is mental reservation, how to preserve truth and mental reservation and charity at the same time when someone is approaching you for information, you know, that really is not theirs to get, yours to give, or, you know, you really just don't want to um, share with that mm -hmm. person would be an inappropriate thing to do. So it's almost like, how do you handle that segue in a way that has virtue and charity, and you're not going to be um, dishonest? Anyway. And, you know, I think on some level, we should say to the person that they do not have a right to that information or, or that we cannot share that information rather than telling a lie right. about it. And again, that, that can be harder because our self-esteem, our ego uh, can enter into the picture where we want to, uh, we don't want another person to become angry with us. Well, we're going to have a hard time in this life as Christian men and women if we're uncomfortable with people being angry with us. And in fact, we have to be com comfortable with that. I think right. just in relationships in general, uh, to be honest with others, to speak the truth with others means it's sometimes we're going to have to be comfortable with people directing their anger or aggression towards us. Well, what about just like, for instance, I was um, another person and I were having a discussion and what you know about the idea of being able to say when they're asking you a question can you simply say well I really can't say in that sense where because you know if you finish this sentence it would be I really can't say because that's none of your business right <laughs> you know but it's a more a little more polite to say well you know I really can't say but you're leaving the second half off as, as part of your mental reservation. Is that an appropriate way to handle that? I don't know. I, I'm a priest and there are a lot of things that I can't talk about or even mention yeah. to other people. So uh, I think on some level we have to, in terms of the maturing of our faith, right? and again, in light of what John is speaking about here, it's what, what has been revealed to us about even the very nature of truth itself and what it means for us to speak the truth and live in the truth. And I, I want John to allow John a little bit more time here to guide us through it before we sort of pull it apart with specific specifics. I, I see another question here by Cindy Moran, and I, I don't want to ignore anybody's question, but I, I want us to be able to let John say a little bit more here and before we start unpacking what he said, because we've only gotten into his initial definition. That's okay. Thank you. For okay. Thank Ren, you. did you have something to add before we move? Okay. Ren writes, I feel like this is a really hard one. Intellectually, I actually feel like it is easy to understand. Emotionally, it kind of feels like one of those instances where being Christian can feel like a killjoy to put it in a light way. Maybe the immense anxiety I feel in response to this is coming from the fear that being a Christian means no joy or everyday happiness. It is weird because I know that isn't true, but sometimes it can be hard to reconcile the lived experience of Christianity with the things the fathers write. Well, it's interesting, your last little phrase there, the lived experience of Christianity. Uh, wonderful comment. Uh, and because I, th I think we often feel this way, but again, the lived experience of Christianity is to is to participate and in an invincible piece of the kingdom. And same thing about joy and hope. And we have to ask ourselves when we feel this anxiety, this uneasiness, where we are living our life. 
the deeper that we are immersed in the in our life in Christ, and the more that we take hold of the, the grace that comes to us, the sacraments and the spirit dwelling within us, the more that we are going to experience something of the joy of the kingdom and a joy that no one and no thing can take away from us. And so often, uh, I think part of our examination of our hearts and consciences in the face of, of these experiences that are real uh, have to be, you know, where am I living my life? And what, what does this anxiety tell me? Like anxiety for us as human beings is ubiquitous, that everybody experiences it. We're unsettled. Uh, and part of that being unsettled, that unsettledness, often is due to the, the fact of our being, of our uh, intimacy with Christ, experiencing some impediment, that we've turned away from him in some way, or our faith has weakened, or we've been negligent or lax in the spiritual life, uh, or, or we're experiencing a kind of temptation to, to uh, fall into despondency, where the evil one is drawing us away from faith or trusting in the Lord. And so this anxiety, uh, you know, of, of kind of being of two minds, of split mind, uh, is, is often rooted in this experience of living in a fallen world and our struggle with sin. Whereas the more that we are at, at one, one with Christ, the more that we've put on the mind of Christ and taken hold of the spirit that dwells within us, the kingdom of God dwells within, the more that we should experience the peace of that kingdom. And, and, and so if we experience this kind of dis-ease, uh, it often has to do with a kind of internal disintegration because we've moved away from he who is the source of life, the source of peace, and the very source of truth for us and source of joy. And, uh, you know, I, I think we can, when we look at our lives and even on for one part of a day, we can see how quickly we move to that state, not just about something like this, what we were talking about in this step, but to that inner state of disease, of, of being uncomfortable, of worry, of being worried, of anxious about something. And that, again, that anxiety tells us something important, not to shame us or to throw us into a tailspin of guilt, but sometimes it's telling us that we need to turn to he who is our peace. We need to cling to him in prayer and to, to hold fast to him and not try to control the circumstances around us or control what others are doing and saying to us, that our identity, our, our sense of our dignity as human beings is to be rooted in something far deeper. And sometimes we lose sight of that because of what people say to us or certain things that happen to us in our life. And when we see that, and I think this is where spiritual guidance or confession can be very helpful to us, you know, both through the grace that comes through it, but the counsel, you know, of turn to the Lord in a deeper fashion. Pray without ceasing, as Paul tells us. So to have something, for example, like the Jesus prayer constantly in the mind, in the heart, we are, are in this constant movement from the self to God. And not episodically, but it's to be of almost like our breathing. And if you remember, you know, I think one of your favorite writers as well, Paul Avdekimov says, we are to become prayer. So the very essence of who we are is to be so formed by that reality that we are constantly turned towards God in all that we're doing in all of our encounters with others in our work during the day. And it's a struggle for us. Sometimes we lose sight of God in the midst of that, and the more frenetic our lives become, the more difficult it is to hold on to that peace of the kingdom. 
Okay, and now we'll, we'll, I'll, we'll open it up for further questions here as we go on. And uh, I just want to let, again, John sort of unpack things a little bit for us here, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll see what comes to mind. Uh, I believe we're on number five. When the demons see that after the mischievous relator of jest has begun, we attempt to flee from hearing him as it were from an infectious disease, then they try to catch us by two thoughts, suggesting to us, do not offend the storyteller or do not appear to love God more than they do, be off. Do not dally, otherwise at at the time of your prayer, the jokes will recur to your mind and not only run, but even piously disconcert the bad company by offering for their general attention the thought of death and judgment. For perhaps it is better for you to be sprinkled with a few drops of vainglory if only you can become a channel of profit for many. So isn't that a curious thought that John is saying to us that having a few drops of vainglory fall on us by correcting what's taking place in a set of circumstances, it's preferable to giving ourselves over and being influenced by the action of those who are, are jesting or using lies as a, a, a way of joking. And uh, that uh, kind of psychological attack is very common. You, you don't want to offend the person. So stand there and smile and nod your head and even laugh a little bit. Or you don't want to appear as if you love God more than, than they do. You don't want to appear like you're a holy roller or a fanatic. So again, you know, stay there and listen to this. Don't make it a, a big deal. And so John, John is even willing to say, okay, even if there is the risk of vainglory and saying, okay, uh, we need to re remember something important, maybe even the mindfulness of death or to redirect what is being said in such a way onto ourselves or onto another subject, uh, the better for us to do, do that than to to stand in the face of it and allow it to influence our minds and our hearts. We become very acceptable, it, uh, accepting. And it's sort of interesting about Christians in our day is that we want to fit in and we want to be a part of the culture and have worked very hard to be a part of the culture. And part of it is this sense of, uh, of needing to be able to, to function and function well within the culture and not be estranged from it or pushed out to the margins or not be able to succeed. And, you know, we, we know those, you know, those first immigrants to our country struggled with that, you know, in terms of their, their cultural identity, the, the writing of the, of the spelling of their names, the languages that they spoke. You know, my own gr grandfather wouldn't allow, and my mom will test this, any, the, 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 oh, they were only allowed to speak English. And, you know, my grandmother's French, he was Polish, and he spoke multiple languages. But when they came to this country, it was English and English alone. And one might question, you know, whether uh, certainly that was a good idea. But we see the sensitivity there, that if you stand out, then you're going to be at a disadvantage. And I think we have this, even if it's an unconscious concern, it's still there, an unconscious concern that we are going to stand out even among others of faith. And again, here, John is talking to monks. And so we, you know, um, even a monk might worry, well, they're gonna think that, that I'm, you know, being proud or think that I love God more than they do, you know, who am I to say something about this? And so, you know, we are tempted to remain mute. So it's, uh, you know, John isn't backing off, I think, from the weight that he gives us. Anthony writes, with humor, movies, comedy, routines, Facebook, it is easy to go along 
And then the storyteller sneaks in covert, in uh, uh, covertly the blatant evil things, and bam, there they are in the head, coming to mind in an ambush when they are most unwelcome. Yeah, I think that's why a step like this is so important, precisely because we have access to so many things. And we've talked so often in the past about being in this constant state of receptivity in and through our senses. And the, the fact that uh, information comes to us so swiftly that it's often against our will now that we are presented with something, you know, from anything from a billboard to, you know, advertising, as you said, on, on Facebook, commercials on television, you know, all these things, we might not want to hear them on one level, but in reality, we do. And the mind is a powerful thing. Even if we are conscious of it, what we've seen and what we've experienced and been exposed to is there. The mind, the mind is a powerful thing. So it might not be conscious to it at all, but it can come forward swiftly and instantaneously when the evil one is tempting us. This is where Freud was interesting when he said, in the unconscious, there's no sense of time. And so even things that we heard or experienced years ago might be deep down within the unconscious and or repressed because it was traumatic, but something that triggers it can make it present to the conscious mind in an instant. And so if that's true, how, how cautious are we to be uh, in the spiritual life about what it is that we expose our minds and our hearts to. Okay. Number six, hypocrisy is the mother of lying and often it's occasion. For some define hypocrisy as none other than meditation on falsehood and an inventor of falsehood which has a reprehensible oath intertwined with it. And so, you know, we've often heard hypocrisy is being described as, or defined as playing the actor of putting on a, a mask, of wearing a mask, putting on a false identity. And, uh, and so often uh, this can be true. And I think Anthony alluded to it earlier that, you know, by the way that we live our lives, we, can be hypocrites. We can be saying one thing with our mouth and put on this these airs, put on this mask of religiosity, and even make specific vows religiously, uh, but not hold, hold on to them. In the background, our lives can be quite different. And if that's not clear to us in our day and age, I don't know what would be. I mean, we've experienced the destructiveness of this and with a deep falsehood that has torn the, the church apart and uh you know led to the decimation of the priesthood you know those who are to be shepherds you know uh, used that in such a way uh for th their own personal satisfaction to you know where we i think we understand perfectly what john is saying above it's a destruction of love and a very denial of God himself. So, hypocrisy, which has a, a reprehensible oath intertwined with it. So, you know, that, that's an important thing. And, you know, Christ often condemned this kind of hypocrisy, especially among those who were the religious leaders of the day, who were putting themselves forward as lovers of the law and lovers of God. And yet so much of what was being done behind the scenes was reflective of something far different. You know, and a willingness to use religion in a very destructive way. One of those, you know, was the, and the woman caught in adultery 
you know, there was part of them that wanted to, to do this, to drag her out into the square of the town and stone her to death. There can be a sick pleasure in, you know, in taking and using this kind of religiosity and this religious identity uh, to beat people down and to condemn people. And it's not as though this kind of Phariseeism and, and its hypocrisy is, has died off. The Pharisees might not exist anymore, but you know, we know that it's very much present and this kind of hypocrisy can be very much present within our own hearts. He who has obtained the fear of the Lord has forsaken lying, having within himself an incorruptible judge his own conscience. What a beautiful saying. And again, something that we could spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, has forsaken it altogether because the conscience, which means to, to know with God, the very uh, aspect of what it is to be a human being that God has given us that helps us to, to, to know and to perceive the truth as he's revealed it to us and becomes our judge. It rebukes us when we turn away from that truth. And so the more that the mind and the heart and the conscience has been formed, the more abhorrent lying is going to become to us, the more that we are going to turn away from it. We notice various degrees of harm in all person, all the passions. And this is certainly the case with lying. There's one judgment for him who lies through fear of punishment and another for him who lies when no danger is at hand. And so this takes us back, I think, to some of the concerns uh, of those you know, earlier in the conversation that John acknowledges that there are different reasons that the people might have for lying. And a very big one can be fear of punishment or some other grave danger that might lead a person to lie. And certainly that's going to be is seen in the eyes of God as being different from a person who lies when there is no danger at hand. And so what, what does it mean to hold fast to the truth, even in the face of danger? And how does that uh, affect the way that we engage the world around us? Uh, again, I, I think there's an enormous temptation for us as Christians, uh, if not to lie, then to, to modify the truth to such an extent that it is really no longer the truth in order to keep uh, people from treating us poorly or criticizing us. And uh, again, it can begin in very subtle ways, you know, that seem insignificant to us. Uh, but uh, I think when, when pressured, what John is saying to us, you know, we can be driven into something qu quite grave. Any comments here before we move on with the, the rest of the step? Okay. Okay, I think did one did just come up. Hold on for one second here. Daniel Allen, okay, he says. So this may be making a little more sense to me. If the concern is with truth and the truth is a person, then we can have a tendency to come between truth and another person, between the other and his remembrance of the truth himself, which sort of reminds me of two parts of the gospel. Better to have a millstone tied around the neck and cast into the sea than to cause the fall of one of these little ones. And also what God has joined, let no man divide. Neither are traditionally applied to this type of thought, but if by our jesting and always or often making light of things, we can get between a person and his remembrance of God or of mourning, then in a way we are doing just that on a spiritual level, dividing the person from the remembrance of God. We can generally unintentionally get between God and another person and generally to pump up our own ego. ego. 
The lying part makes sense. It's the joking that's hard to get. Yes, you know, because I think, you know, joking and humor it is, you know, an aspect of being a human being that we find things humorous. And certainly the saints did as well. You know, when, when something happens or strikes us funny uh, as being funny, we would laugh at it. But we also know that sin can touch that. And one of the more subtle ways I think that the evil one would use to lead us to abuse the truth would be precisely something like this, something that would lighten and the, the mind and the heart that would distract us from the realities of day-to-day -day life and the harshness of life. And that's how, how often we use it. And this is why, you know, I think comedy shows are so often, you know, very popular. Uh, but I think on some, some way they can d diminish, uh, as John says, this uh, uh, kind of attention and remembrance of God, of the things that have eternal weight and value. And so being lighthearted uh, can be not just... Uh, uh, being gentle or, or meek with ourselves and others, but it can, uh, let me put it this way. There can be a difference between a person who is uh, joyful and does not take himself too seriously and so can find humor in himself and his own foibles. And there is a difference between that individual and the buffoon who takes nothing seriously. And so you have St. Philip Neri, for example, being the joyful saint and saying, melancholy, melancholy, you have no place in my house, in my communities. But saying at the same time that buffoonery is destructive to piety and to religiosity. It's uh, an individual who takes nothing seriously, including the truth itself. And I think this is what John acknowledges, that we can be led through the, the joyfulness that should be ours as Christians, and that even gives rise to humor, good humor, uh, and take us down that path of buffoonery of not taking the truth seriously, not taking our lives seriously, our dignity, our destiny, the truth of our life in Christ. So it, you know, getting back to Ren's comment, you know, we are not meant to be killjoys. I think it's it's saying something or Christianity is not meant to be a killjoy. It's saying something about the nature and the quality of our joy. What should that look like? Is there a distinctive and unique Christian joy over a worldly joy? And I think the answer to that question is yes, when it's touched and perfected by the grace of God. One lies for sheer wantonness, another for amusement, one to make bystanders laugh, and another to trap his brother and do him injury. And so John begins to sort of tease things out a little bit here for us, that lying can be used in different ways, you know, to satisfy oneself or some internal need that one has for amusement uh, for oneself or for others, to make bystanders laugh, or something much more uh, malicious, to bring harm to another, to bring injury. So to distort the truth or to lie directly in order to diminish another person's character. Lying is wiped out by the tortures of superiors but it is finally destroyed by an abundance of tears. I'd, I'd like to see the Greek word for tortures <laughs> of superiors there. I don't know if anybody has another uh, 
caught another translation here. If you could let us know, Eric, I think you have another translation. Uh, if you're with us here, if you uh, are in the text, if there's another word used there, that would be helpful. Uh, but I, yeah, I'll look it up. Uh, okay. um, sorry, I was I was uh, multitasking there. Mm -hmm. um, not multitasking. Oh my goodness! <laughs> During climate. Um, Various kinds of harm can be observed in the passions, and lying is no exception. So judgment awaits the man who lies out of fear, that another, the liar who has no nothing at all to worry about. One man lies for the sheer pleasure of it, and another for amusement, another to raise a laugh among bystanders, another to trap his brother and do harm him. Magistrates can root out lying with tortures, though it is an abundance of tears that truly destroys it. Did you say magistrates? I said magistrates. Okay. So that, that's interesting. So magistrates, you know, can bring out the truth in others by torturing them. That enough pain is going to make a person spill the beans. <laughs> mm. And uh, but John is saying here, but for lying to be truly destroyed, it, it cannot be tortured out of it us it has to be love that drives it out our love for again he who is the truth and the abundance of tears that are shed in compunction in the ways that we do not hold fast to that truth it's the tears of compunction that cleanse the heart but also wipe away the, the tendency that we have towards lying so force can be used but it's it's not really changing the heart it's using this pressure to make a person speak the truth but it's not it's not transforming the heart as as love does he who gives way to lying does not does so under the pretext of prudence and he often regards what is the destruction of his soul as an act of righteousness the inventor of lies makes out that he is an imitator of Rahab and says that by his own destruction, he is affecting the salvation of others. So interesting here, you know, that can use, you know, the father of lies can use examples, even such as one like Rahab. Uh, and to say that, okay, my, my lying is protecting others from destruction. And we'll use the pretext of prudence, you know, of this kind of right judgment or, or this capacity to discern the nature of circumstances. And we'll, we'll use that often in the place uh, to replace or uh, not replace, but um as a result of a lack of courage uh, a lack of courage in holding on to the truth we often say that prudence tells us discernment tells us that we should not tell the truth here because it will protect the destruction of others and so often in this case and i think this is why people so and I won't say why people, uh, I have to include myself in this, why we will so often vigorously uh, struggle to find examples of where the truth should be withheld uh, in order to justify lying. And I think when, we're, when we do so, we might be even doing so with the best of intentions of trying to understand something. But our starting point, I think, can be wrong in that regard, that in our looking at something like lying, uh, we, again, our starting point has to be Christ himself. And we can't turn it into abstraction. And that's what typically happens. Or we, uh, use, we use absurdity uh something that's so egregious that a person has to say well of course or something that is extreme 
to say, all right, that, that's an exception here. And, uh, and so, you know, making distinctions is important. And I, I don't want to belittle that or diminish that, that there are certain circumstances where uh, people are put to the test when it comes to protecting the innocent and withholding truth that would put them in jeopardy. You know, and the typical story is that, you know, nuns hiding Jewish children and the Nazis knock at the door and ask, are there any Jews here? And they're saying no, you know, that this becomes the example then that shows, well, lying is acceptable in certain circumstances. Uh, but often I think we use this as a, a justification and can be used as a justification to diminish our sensitivity and sensibilities here in terms of how we live in the truth and what that means. And, you know, we see what it means in Christ and what it meant for him. And it meant being willing to go to the cross. You know, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And, uh, ultimately the leads to his destruction and so many of the other things that he said uh led to his own destruction and uh, so are the lens through which we view the truth or even the question of lying it always has to be through him and through the cross and you remember, again, Isaac saying, you know, knowledge of the cross is, comes through the experience of the cross. And I think, you know, our knowledge and our understanding of the truth and of what John is saying here is our perfect, being perfected in this virtue, in our love of the truth, but also in purity of heart, that there is true discernment that exists within the mind and the heart. And until that's true, I mean, it's very hard to trust in our own judgment. We often cling to private judgment and cling to things that feel, again, comfortable for us on an emotional level, but might not actually be the path that is God is leading us down or what he's revealed to us. Uh, Jacqueline writes uh, from Proverbs, like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. Wow, that's a powerful uh, scripture passage. And then Cindy Moran up above asked about that very point. Uh, is that, you mean the one about uh, occasion of lie? Yeah, yeah, Corey Tenboom lied to the Nazis when asked if the Jews were in the house. This is okay. Right, you know, and I, again, I think these are the examples that are, are brought up that you know really have to do you know with, with facing evil within the world and again even in these circumstances I, I think we have to allow ourselves to look to christ first and allow his spirit of truth to guide us along the the path that god has called us to walk in this life and certainly you know telling a lie or withholding a truth to protect innocence is going to be looked upon by God in a different way. And John says this than one who does purely out of wantonness, out of the desire uh, to have people see us in a way or to amuse, amuse them. But I don't want us to lose the greater truth of what John is putting forward here is that lying is no small, insignificant thing. In fact, we have to use, and maybe this is a good thing, you know, that Cindy brings up and others have brought up, we have to use this extraordinary set of circumstances to uh, consider something where it's not binding for us. Whereas I think our approach to it should probably be from another direction, not, find, not looking to the extreme examples, but looking to the most extreme and profound example of truth itself. To he who is truth, 
and to allow his spirit, that spirit of truth dwelling within us to guide and direct us. Because I think we've come up with a multitude of reasons and ideas. Yeah, the trap of whataboutism deflects from a general truth, right? And I think that's what we want to avoid. Let's see here. When we are completely cleansed of lying, then we can resort to it, but only with fear and as an occasion as occasion demands. Uh huh. So, John, if we listen to John and if we stay with him, as so often is the case, you know, he brings us to these extreme circumstances. Okay. And it's exactly what we just talked about. If our hearts have com been completely cleansed, if we're pure of heart, if there is no dishonesty and no untruth within us, then, then we can resort to it because we're not doing it for all these other reasons that John has just laid out for us. If you have a pure heart and you're faced with this extraordinary circumstances, well, okay, then you're, you're doing it for the most pure of reasons. But there are perhaps a few of us that have that level of purity of heart where we've cleansed it from ourselves completely. A babe knows nothing of lying. Neither does a soul that is stripped of guile. So a, a soul that has been purified, where there is no untruth and there is no duplicity with, with, within us, then, you know, then we've been stripped of, of lying altogether. And this is what makes, you know, when our Lord speaks to Nathaniel, you know, here is one with, with an Israelite with, with no guile. It's an extraordinary thing to say to a, a person. There is no duplicity in this one who comes before, before me. In fact, I think we've talked about this before. He was under a fig tree, which was often a symbol of prayer and of worship of God. And this is what moves Nathaniel so much, that Christ saw him in the very act of worship and prayer. I saw you under the fig tree. He who has become merry with wine involuntarily speaks the truth on all subjects. And he who is drunk with compunction cannot lie. John is wonderful. Uh, you know, just how he sort of pulls these uh, little things out of the air that, you know, the, uh, the common realities of our life. You know, when a person is drunk, they're, they often blurt and, and blurt out everything about themselves and others and their own family. They betray every confidence. Uh, but a, a person who is drunk with compunction uh, similarly cannot lie, but not because they are uninhibited because of wine, but because they are filled with the, the, you know, the true wine, as it were, you know, of Christ himself. The 12th step, he who has mounted it, has obtained the root of every good. So the root of every good. So, you know, holding on to the truth allows us then to perceive the realities around us with this greater clarity. And most certainly about our, ourselves. The more that we love the truth, the more sensitive our conscience is going to become, the more that we are going to see where we need repentance and to turn back to God. And so to cherish this virtue, then is to make great gains in the spiritual life. Anthony uh, posted here uh, the Greek text of this chapter. I can barely read Greek and can't locate the, the word torture. Okay, so if somebody at some point wants to read that next week when we come back, uh, I'll, try, I'll try to look at it too and see if I can make heads or tails of it. 
But I, I think what uh, Eric brought up, a magistrate, you know, this idea of torturing the truth out of people is a common practice, certainly within the cultures. And crucifixion being one of them. You know, if you wanted to get truth out of somebody, you know, nail them to the cross for a few minutes and they'll, they're, you know, they're telling you everything that you want to know. Oh, the word is agonia. So to, you know, to agonize, make them agonize over something. Okay, uh, any final comments as we come to the end of this group? Daniel says, I think one thing I take from this is that I often don't consider the significance of my own words and that words have greater significance than generally thought. Yes, you know, in, in a simple way, I think this is what John is trying to set before us that not to make light of what we say or the things that we expose other people, expose ourselves to other people saying to us. The truth is something precious. And, and again, it's a person, one that we should love and cherish. And so not, not to make light of it. Good way to end to the group. So why don't we close as always with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.